Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Eric Albrey. He is a music writer and publicist and promoter and I don't know what. He does everything. I, everything, I think, except put out albums himself, although maybe he's done that as well. I don't know. Have you, Eric? Have you ever written an album? Oh, you ever put together an album? Oh, oh no. Okay. No, I didn't. All right. No. And the I, I wondered if I so somehow missed that one. Okay. Anywhere near a recording studio. All right. Every year, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I'm sure they're doing it just to to troll us, to get us talking about stuff, because I, I, I do think they do that on purpose. But how <laughs> explain to me what has happened in the past year or two that Willie Nelson, a man who's never sung a rock and roll song in his entire life, who is now, I think, 90 or 91 years old, suddenly becomes a nomination a nominee for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How Explain how in any way this fits or works. Okay, so let's assume that last year when they put forth Dolly Parton's name on it, it was to generate publicity first and foremost of the most one of the most beloved musicians ever on the planet um and because there were so many people who did want to see her in the rock and roll hall of fame even though that she first rescinded saying that if she got voted in she wouldn't accept the nomination and then quickly changed her mind and got in um i think the rock and roll hall of fame saw that and said you know maybe we should just change it to a little bit, not necessarily to always gun for free publicity, but the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame came out with a statement on Monday, and it basically says that because of the collusion of the rhythm and blues, country and gospel, rock and roll is a spirit that is ever-changing, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame celebrates the sound of youth culture and honors the artists whose music connects us all. And I think that was one of the first times that they actually justified any existence of an artist specifically for a, um, for a round table sort of thing, meaning that when you go through the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, induction list and you see somebody like Missy Elliott on it, it's so obvious that people are going to say, but Missy Elliott isn't rock and roll. But the fact is, though, that she literally created the blueprint for so many others that followed her that did have that spirit of rock and roll. This statement that they came out this week actually kind of symbolizes it's okay now to have country and roots and and um, rhythm and blues uh, and soul and hip-hop in there because it's all about the spirit of youth culture and the sound and the spirit of rock and roll. And in the beginning, quite frankly, Willie Nelson, maybe not rock and roll, but there weren't certainly a lot of rock and rollers because country mixed with R&B created rock and roll. So you had not that far away in the beginning of Willie Nelson's career, what Elvis Presley was doing and what Willie Nelson was doing in the 50s. Mm. It, it, is it maybe time though, and I don't know that it changes much essentially, but is it time to rename this thing just the Pop Music Hall of Fame? Because that would seem to capture way more of what we're talking about and would stop a lot of these discussions. Yeah, they certainly can't change it to any specific style of music because it, every genre now has its own museum, including the hip hop museum that's in New York that is due to open this year. Um, you know, if sports 
has told us anything and taught us anything, it's really hard to change a brand, especially in, in America. You have hundreds of millions of dollars worth of advertising out there, merchandise. Um, and yeah, I guess it could be done. I just probably wouldn't wouldn't vote on it anytime soon. Mm. I, I don't think they're going to really change it because then it does leave out people like the Spinners and Iron Maiden um, calling it the Music Hall of Fame. I, I think that's good. I think it's really too broad because I think in the beginning, they really did want to keep it to rock and roll. They wanted to really keep it to um, to primarily celebrating the record labels who helped create the thing in the first place. But as time goes on and as they move away from the 60s and 70s and move moving into the 80s and 90s, you're going to have a lot of artists who mesh genres together um, thanks to the iPod, thanks to Spotify, thanks to just yeah. people growing up yeah. with, like David Bowie and Chic in the household. But, and again, I mean, not, not to pick on Willie Nelson, pick on any of the other people if you want to, but I, I don't see the day come. You mentioned about all these genres that now are having their own rock or their own halls of fame. I don't see any way that suddenly Iron Maiden, a group you just mentioned, gets inducted into the Hip Hop Hall of Fame. So if there's a Hip Hop Hall of <laughs> Fame, why not put the Hip Hop artists in there and put the Rock and Roll ones into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Like it just, it seems like we're, we're sort of meshing stuff, but not really meshing stuff. Yeah, you know, it, and it and it really does depend on um, on the continuing impact that these artists are able to make. Certainly Willie Nelson um, remains as relevant to anybody in rock and roll as anybody else does that's on this list. Um, New Order could not really be considered rock and roll. Joy Division, maybe not. I mean, they were they were kind of like new wave. They were kind of a little bit early EDM. Um, somebody like the Spinners certainly wasn't. But I, I think in terms of, of relevance and the fact that Willie Nelson still continues to... Um, to kind of influence and spark creativity in rock and rollers might be just a good enough reason for them to do it. But look, I, I can argue both sides, but look, let's face it. You and I know that in their quiet moment, the rock and roll hall of fame is just like everybody else out there. Um, they're trying to stay relevant. They're trying yeah. to get people yeah. into the building and they're trying to make money and that's it. Well, they, 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 so I used to say that they were irrelevant until Rush was in. Rush finally got in, and now they're irrelevant until the Guess Who is in, is my new yeah, position that right, I'm, I'm standing right. on. But here's the other one about this. Uh, one name that I found really funny to be on the list of nominees now, Kate Bush had been nominated four times. No traction whatsoever. Suddenly, Stranger Things comes out with a new season. Kate Bush's song, um, Running Up That Hill, suddenly becomes a huge hit again. She didn't do anything new. She didn't record a new song. It's an old song that suddenly got traction. And now, look, Kate Bush is probably getting in because of a song that got new life 30 years, 40 years after she wrote it. It seems weird. I'm willing to bet that Kate Bush is my is my odds-on favorite to get in. Um, not, you know, uh, having running up that hill, being revived like that in Stranger Things just shows that not only was it one of the year's biggest hits last year, um, but it showed that how much legacy she had where all of these artists were coming out of the woodwork, praising Kate Bush, everybody from uh -huh. Pink to Olivia Rodrigo to, you know, all these new fans that were suddenly interested in Kate Bush as a woman, as an artist, as a producer, and all of these things. So, you know, that goes back to the whole... Um, yes, did you have hits, but are you relevant today? Um, that's why I think somebody like 
different than Cher certainly has the hits. Is she still part of the landscape? Probably not. Is Barry White eligible? Yeah. Does he deserve to get in? Probably. But realistically, other than, you know, Whitney Houston and T-Rex and the Notorious B.I.G., there's not a lot of Barry White out there anymore. So I think it does come down to how important are you today, too? You know, oh, we got to go. But you know who then, by that standard, you know who absolutely should be in there? Because you cannot go into most stores that play background music and not hear their song once in a while, so it means they're there. How are the Carpenters not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Oh, I, I hear you. Uh, you're, you're, <laughs> I'm just you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, not saying the Carpenters were rock and roll by any stretch, but if it's on relevance and how you can't get away from their music, uh, love them or oh, hate them. Well, you've got, you've got Nirvana and Sonic Youth both praising throughout their careers what the Carpenters were able to do. And Karen Carpenter, easily one of the greatest drummers in music. Easily. <laughs> I thought you were going to go singer for sure, but okay, we'll take, we'll take, she and Neil Peart side by side in the drummer's yeah. hall of fame. Yeah. Eric she Alford. can go look on YouTube. Yeah. She can, <laughs> always, kick, she can kick Always it. appreciate it, Eric. Thanks for doing this. Thanks man. We'll talk soon. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, there is somebody who we hear on this show occasionally. You may recognize the name Sylvain Charlebois. He talks to us about things to do with food, the food pro, pro, uh, professor he's called. Uh, he wrote a piece that really got my attention today. And the headline is, A quarter of Canadian grocery stores won't accept cash in five years, reports suggest. The idea being that, you know, we are moving towards that cashless society that'll be all very convenient and everything will be perfect but will it? Is this really where we want to go with our economy, with our spending, with, with our control over our money? Or is even raising this issue sounding like someone who is believing in giant conspiracy theories and behind the scenes power brokers and all the rest? I want to bring in Brett Scott. He is the author of a book called Cloud Money, among others, Cash, Cards, Crypto, and the War for Our Wallets. He joins me now. Brett, thanks for doing this. Hey, Scott. Good to be here. Well, let me start with that. Any any time someone may suggest that they have concerns about moving away from cash altogether and going to a digital currency, there will be those who will say, oh, you're just listening to the conspiracy theorists. It's fine. What could possibly go wrong? Nothing. Is, is it being conspiratorial to have some little niggling thing in the back of your brain that goes, I'm not sure about this? No, absolutely not. I mean, what conspiracy theorists generally do is they take some kind of intuition that people have and they put a very sort of crude story on it. And they tell you that it's a, you know, particular people who are orchestrating it. But in reality, you know, in large scale economic systems, you don't need conspiracies to explain why, for example, big corporations do what they do. You know, big corporations try to automate everything. They try to optimize their profits. And in doing that, they will try to, for example, take down the cash system, right? Because they it's, it stops them from automating. You know, and that's what the big retailers, for example, want to do. You don't need a conspiracy to explain why that happens, but it's definitely a top-down push, right? And um, I think we're used to a narrative in the sort of, you know, the very sort of kind of normal narrative that gets pushed out by industry is that the reason why these things happen is that there's a bottom-up kind of desire from the public, all right? But in reality, it's a much more complex mix. As for a long time, there's been many of these players, um, including the banking sector, the fintech sector, big tech, big retail, 
who actively try to push people away from the cash system. I mean, certainly there are those who will say, if you have no cash, if it's all digital, you potentially have no fraud. You don't have people getting robbed. You have, um, you know, it's easier to keep track of everything. You don't lose money per se. And I suppose there's something, there's something to that, right? Well, there's a standard, uh, there's a standard story that cash is old, inefficient, um, outdated, um, and dangerous, right? And that tends to be contrasted with a sort of a romantic vision of digital money as being super efficient, you know, new, modern, and so on, and less dangerous somehow. In reality, though, there's many, many dangerous elements to digital systems. All the things that people talk about that are bad about cash systems, you find in digital systems too, and sometimes on a much greater scale. Um, and also the cash system has many positive benefits. It's inclusive. It doesn't crash. It's it's um, pr promotes economic localization. You know, it's um, doesn't create centralization of power, and it pr preserves pr privacy. So in reality, the 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 story is much more complex. And and when you're looking at this debate, you should be thinking about how do you create a balance of power in the monetary system? All right. Say we need to keep different forms of money, much like with a transport system. You might say we want to keep a balance of power between, say, Uber and, you know, the public bicycle system. You want multiple different types of transport. And in many ways, cash is like the public bicycle of payments, you know, you might not use it for everything, but you don't want it to disappear. And you know, these digital systems—they're like the private Uber of payments. That they might superficially be convenient in certain situations, but you don't want them controlling the entire payment system. Right, because if you go entirely digital, you have essentially given all the power to control all the system to big tech or to the government. Correct? Yeah, exactly. And if you want to use the transport metaphor, it's a bit like. You know, ceding power of your entire transport system to like a few um, automated companies like Uber. Again, those systems are only empowering insofar as you have the option to not use them. All right. If you're suddenly forced to use them, suddenly everything becomes a much different story. You have massive surveillance. You have huge potential for censorship, the ability to control people's actions through their payments. You have huge resilience problems, and that these systems are often fail you know right and you even have... yeah and even as i asked that question and i talked about big tech and government again those are like terms that sound conspiratorial and then i think but wait a second is that not exactly what for example china does where if you misbehave maybe not with money maybe with money but they have ways within their government to just basically shut you down i, I don't know that i mean it may sound conspiratorial but i don't know that we want to give even an opportunity for that yeah, I don't think you should get too hung up on on sounding conspiratorial. I mean, this is uh, this is very very normal in large scale economic systems for big players to try to dominate. I mean, that's just just what they do all the time. All right, um, and I think it's naive for us to imagine that it doesn't happen. You know, and bear in mind the sort of standard sort of rosy ideology is like, oh, the only reason why all this technology exists is because all of us all want it, and the only reason the companies build it is because they they polled the population, and the population was like, we want you to build these things. I mean, that's not how capitalist systems work. Capitalist systems work with large players who try to like, you know force their products into the market and use their power to dominate, you know, and players like Apple do that. And big players always do that. It's very, very standard part of market systems. So, and it's, you know, during the pandemic, when you saw these big retailers, a lot of those big retailers wanted to automate their systems already. And they used the pandemic as a very convenient excuse. All right. 
Um, because you couldn't uh, go out of the house. You had to buy stuff online. Yeah, so you're basically forced to. If you want to see a very good example of you know one of these so-called conspiracies, um, Visa entered into a deal with the NFL, you know, the US Football League. And um, in 2019, and part of the deal was a sponsorship deal saying, if you want our sponsorship, you have to make your certain of your Super Bowls, quote unquote, go cashless, all right, as a way to promote Visa. But the first uh, version of this um, so-called cashless Super Bowls came out in 20, uh, 2020 during the pandemic. And of course, the narrative that got spun around it was that somehow it was to do with the pandemic. But that deal was signed in 2019 is what they always wanted to do anyway. Do you think people have thought this through? I think some people have, but do you think most people have thought this through? Because a lot of people, it is very convenient and they would be fine with this. But is this the kind of thing that everybody should be reading your book or at least just sitting down in their own mind and doing a pros and cons thing? I, okay, great. I can buy Amazon online. I can buy whatever online, but is it worth doing that? Yeah, absolutely. And um, bear in mind, convenience is a is a relative property that sort of depends on, it's, it's contextual. If I ask you, do you find Uber or your bicycle convenient? It's kind of a meaningless question. It really depends on what situation you're talking about. Actually, people find both convenient. All right. And it's, it's, sim it's similar with, with digital money and cash. People actually find both of them convenient. Um, and it's really, it's only when you have a kind of a cultural push that sort of tries to shame you we're using cash to people sort of internalize this idea that somehow it's old and inefficient and inconvenient and so on, right? Um, but really, most people would prefer to have an option to use mm -hmm. multiple different things. Nobody wants the option to be taken away from them, all right? That's an industry thing. And it's an industry thing they want to automate. That's why they want to take it away from you. It's not like the ordinary person wants the, this option removed, do you think it's just an industry thing, though, or do you think it's a government thing? Because I look at other things, medical, for example. I mean, I'm I am sure that in not very long from now, probably most everything that we do with our medical system here, we have a socialized medical system in Canada, will be automated. You'll have a card or something else where everything is on there. Would governments not also be on board with this, that they'd like everything to be digitized and automated? Sure. I mean, but bear in mind, governments often have a, a bunch of conflicting mandates. If you speak to people, for example, in a central bank, they're often conflicted about this issue because they realize that the stability of the monetary system will be compromised in the case of a cashless society. So while they, while they might want to promote automation and so on, they have other mandates which start to say, you know, actually, this is probably bad for society, right? Um, and bear in mind, lots of governments are often following along with the overarching ideology that ever more automation is always better. All right. So, um, you know, I do think that states are playing a part in this for sure. And there are some states that are actively anti-cash sometimes. But I, I would tend to argue that the 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 lead, that, that a lot of the corporates took the lead on forming this narrative. And many states are sort of following rather than actually um, leading the charge on the cashless society. You mentioned uh, a verb you used a moment ago, and you were talking, I think, from the business side, from big tech, you talked about the push towards this. Do you expect that if this was really proposed, that this was really starting to take hand, that people would push back and demand cash? Or do you think we would just kind of acquiesce and go along with it? Depends on the, the state of your political culture, right? You know, in some places, people just go along with it because they often don't understand what's happening. They don't necessarily understand the details of the monetary system. A lot of people just think that digital money is, quote unquote, an upgrade to cash. 
Um, when in reality, there are two separate systems that run in parallel, much like, you know, bicycles versus Uber. Um, and, you know, you've got to have actually a, you know, not only a political push, but also a kind of cultural push or sort of educational push to sort of show people that actually, you know, you need to, you need to demand this as an option. Um, and I like to use actually the this metaphor around bicycles versus Uber, because, you know, um, the the push towards using things like bicycles actually was something that came after the auto industry kind of started to dominate in society. You, you had to have a kind of cultural movement to say, hey, we demand bicycle lanes in a city as well. You know, and I think we're getting to that stage now with the cash system. People are going to actually have to start to say, you know, we reject this narrative that digital domination is the only form of progress. We actually demand to have a balance of power in our monetary system and we need, we demand access to cash and for it to be protected and also culturally valued. And how do you do that? How do you push back? Is it by buying things with cash? Well, I mean, there's many different things. Of course, at a personal level, it'll be about, you know, asserting your right to buy things with cash, raising the issue, but it's also going to have to be um, at a political level. Um, so there's many different many different forms of, of resistance to this. What I'm doing a lot of right now with the book is going around and actually helping people to understand the different parts of the monetary system so that they can see what's at stake. Um, so there's lots of education to be done. But of course, if you're looking for something to do right now, if you see one of these stores that's um, quote unquote going cashless, aka forcing you to use big finance and big tech, you should raise it with them and, and um, you know tell them why that's it's it's um, unacceptable, right? One of the things that really concerns me about this whole concept, and I I, I do use a debit card, I do use Visa. I'm not against using other than cash but if it was to go fully digital does does it really exist you know what i mean because when you're holding cash you have something in your hand tangible that you know is in your control and is something that can work as a financial tool if it is simply binary numbers dots and or circles and lines in a computer somewhere does it really exist are you guaranteed that it really exists that that always concerns me even though i know again maybe i'm overstating it it just seems i'd rather have something in my hand yeah i would i wouldn't frame it like that personally i mean i'll give you a very crude metaphor i mean if i have a for example a contract with you we could write the contract down on a piece of paper or we could write it down on a computer in, the, in either case, it's the same thing implemented in a different way. All right. And I think it's quite similar with the cash system versus digital money systems. Cash is a physical implementation of a particular type of money. The digital systems are a digital imp implementation of a slightly different type of money. All I, right? agree. Is, I agree. I right? but, agree. But what about a company that all of a sudden freezes an account? Here we had the, yeah. uh, the trucker convoy. Uh, you may have heard about it where you are uh, last year. And bank accounts of those who were there were frozen by the government. Now, whether you agree with the truckers or not is not the issue. It's yeah, that there yeah. was a group that could actually freeze your money that you could not get access to. Absolutely. If I'm holding a $5 bill, that's mine no matter what anyone does. But that's it's slightly different when you because you were saying if it's real or not. I mean, they're both real, okay. right? But the digital format affords central players lots more power because right. they can rem they can remote remotely control it. So of course, the digital format allows a lot more forms of control, but they're both real in the sense of okay. they're uh, just different forms of, of of money, right? And so that that's you know very much a a big element of this debate is that you know with these digital systems, they all re require these central intermediaries in the banking sector. 
um, big tech companies. And of course, that gives them huge amounts of new forms of power. The fact that if you become dependent upon them, um, that becomes a big vector via which they can exercise power or how a government can exercise power via them. Fascinating topic. I wish we had more time. Just one more thing before I let you go. And this is a probably a very minor thing in the grand scheme of things, but certainly cities all over the world right now are dealing with homelessness and people who are down on their luck and people who are in difficult situations. What do you do if you were to bring in an all digital system and some people, for whatever reason, don't have a cell phone that they could access, don't have a bank account, don't have a card? What do you do with those people? Well, this is always one of the issues that's brought up is that there's huge amounts of exclusion, digital exclusion. Um, and de facto, those people get excluded unless you have programs to basically onboard them onto these, these systems. Um, but bear in mind, actually, lots of low-income people prefer the cash system precisely because it's much easier to budget with, with cash. So one of the big things that these um, digital players market is the fact that people spend a lot more money with digital systems. They spend up to 40% more with digital systems. There's many, many, that. many, many studies showing this. It's not a, this is not, you know, speculation. This is, you know, there's research studies showing people spend 25 to 40% more with digital payments. So of course, um, and many people who are on lower incomes intuitively understand this and will often actually gravitate towards the cash system because they have a sort of a stronger, more tangible sense of how to budget with it. Um, but of course, if you're a company that's trying to accelerate um, you know, transactions, you it's actually benefits you if people move to the digital systems because they they get more, you know, they consume more, they get more indebted. Um, but yeah, this is why actually the cash system becomes a very important way of how you protect people on lower incomes. And it's, so rather than saying, okay, how do we include, you know, onboard everybody into digital digital systems, we should be saying, how do we make sure that the cash system stays? You just raised a great point to, to wrap up with about spending more uh, absolutely. I lie in bed sometimes and I'm on my phone just before I go to bed and I happen to be on Amazon. I don't do that. I don't spend cash from my bed. I, yeah, I exactly, absolutely yeah. can buy stuff and be tempted. And I can absolutely see how way more money could be spent online than, than in cash. It's a fascinating, fascinating topic. The book, one of Brett's is called Brett, it's Brett Scott's cloud money, cash cards, crypto, and the war for our wallets. I looked it up. It's on Amazon. I think it's on a bunch of other places where you can use your digital money to buy it. If, if, if you don't want to go to the store and spend cash, uh, Brett really appreciate the time today. Thanks for your insight on this. Really interesting. All right. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.